Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. On the show this week, I'll be speaking with Alert's favorite, Saul Landau. He'll be joining us to talk this week about the rise of the far right and their influence on American politics. And I'll be chatting with Jim Silver, who is a professor of politics at the University of Winnipeg, and his take on Greg Selinger's new premier accolade. And also, I'll be speaking with Fred Wilson of the Communications, Energy and Paper Workers Union, and he'll be talking to us about the crisis in the Canadian pension plan. We'll have alert headlines. And around 11 seven days. As well as Mitch Podolik's Music is the Weapon. And these are the alert headlines for the week of October 22nd, 2009. The UN Human Rights Council in Geneva voted last Friday to endorse a report that accuses Israel of war crimes in Gaza. The mission concluded that there was sufficient evidence to suggest that Israeli actions constituted war crimes and even crimes against humanity, as did the launching of mortar and rocket-propelled grenades by Palestinian armed factions. 25 states endorsed the resolution, with six nations, including the U.S., voting against. The report was led by noted South African jurist Richard Goldstone, who served as the chief prosecutor of the United Nations International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. The Goldstone report states that the International Criminal Court is a competent authority to investigate and prosecute crimes such as those allegedly committed during the 22-day war on Gaza. A ship carrying 76 suspected illegal migrants has been seized off Canada's Pacific coast. Those on board the ship said they were trying to reach Canada. The identity of the migrants was not confirmed, although Canada's public safety minister said there were indications they were from Sri Lanka. He said it appeared to be a case of human smuggling. The migrants, all of whom are men, were transported on Sunday to a prison in Vancouver where they are said to be in good health. Canadian Border Services Agency reports that their detention hearings will begin shortly. The Canadian Tamil Congress says its lawyers will represent the migrants. The immigrant and refugee rights group No One Is Illegal is demanding that officials respect the human rights of the migrants. No One Is Illegal will be working with other community organizations and legal support networks to ensure the migrants are treated justly and with respect and dignity. In Afghanistan, President Ahmed Karzai is expected to concede today that he fell short of the 50% vote share in August's election that he needed to win outright. On Monday, the president was waiting for the Afghan-led Independent Election Commission to decide whether to accept a UN-backed investigative panel's findings that dropped Karzai's vote share to 48% of the total, below the 50% threshold needed for him to avoid a runoff. The original vote count had given Karzai 54% of the total. White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel says the U.S. has postponed a decision on sending more troops to Afghanistan until a legitimate and credible government is in place. Emanuel said Sunday that it would be reckless to send additional troops to the war-torn country without a thorough analysis of the new government to see whether it is a true partner. Investigative reporter Jane Mayer of the New Yorker magazine has revealed the number of U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan has risen dramatically since President Obama took office. 
During his first nine and a half months in office, Obama authorized as many CIA aerial attacks in Pakistan as President Bush did in his final three years in office. At any time, the CIA now has multiple drones flying over Pakistan scouting for targets. Mayer writes, there is no longer any doubt that targeted killing has become official U.S. policy. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez has announced that an alliance of Latin American countries will launch a regional electronic currency, the Sucre, that is expected to begin circulation by 2010. Member nations of the ELBA, a trade bloc of Venezuela's allies, including Bolivia, Nicaragua and Cuba, will meet on October 22nd to sign an accord creating the new currency. Most Latin American countries store their reserves in U.S. dollars. Though the dollar's steady decline in recent years and China's growing influence in the region have left countries seeking new ways to store cash. A New York Times report has accused the Honduran coup regime of Roberto Michelete of paying Washington lobbying and public relations firms at least $400,000 to argue that ousted President Manuel Zelaya posed a threat to their country's fragile democracy by trying to extend his time in office illegally. According to lobbying registration records, the campaign has involved law firms and public relations agencies with close ties to Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton and Senator John McCain, a leading Republican voice on foreign affairs. It has also drawn support from several former high-ranking officials who were responsible for setting United States policy in Central America in the 1980s and 1990s when the region was struggling to break with military dictatorships and civil war. The first Iraqi war deserter to seek sanctuary in a Canadian church is staying in the First United Church in Vancouver's downtown east side. Sarah Bjorkness, Vancouver coordinator for the War Resisters Support Campaign, said about 50 war resisters have sought refugee status in Canada over the last five years. But Rodney Watson is the first to seek safe haven in a church. Watson, 31, of Kansas City, was denied refugee status this summer and was ordered to leave the country by September 11th. After fleeing to Canada in 2006, Watson fathered a son who is now 10 months old. Watson is now seeking to stay in Canada on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Workers' rights groups in over a dozen countries throughout Asia, Europe and the Americas are participating in the public launch of the Asia Floor Wage Campaign. The campaign is demanding a common minimum living wage for garment workers across the Asian region in order to stop the destructive race to the bottom on wages and labor standards. Wage decreases have been fueled by companies moving production between countries in the region in search of ever cheaper labor costs. The campaign now turns its efforts to the campaigning for the adoption of the Asia Floor Wage across the region. And those are the alert headlines for the week of October 22nd, 2009. And now for Around the Left for the week of October 31st, 2009. October 24th to 31st is Indigenous Sovereignty Week. This pur- the purpose of this week is to create a network between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people across the country and build a national movement for Indigenous rights, justice and self-determination. Events are organized for Toronto, Winnipeg, Montreal, Ottawa, Kitchener-Waterloo. 
In 2008, more temporary workers entered the workforce than permanent residents in Canada. And in the past 20 years, Canada has cut its refugee acceptance rate in half. In light of these facts, no one is illegal. Toronto is hosting a forum that will ask the question, what's wrong with Canada's immigration system? Come out and share your own stories about the immigration process in Canada and develop ideas for the way ahead. The forum is held at 245 Church Street in Toronto on October 23rd. Malaya Joya has been called the most famous woman in Afghanistan. At 27, she was elected to Afghanistan's new parliament, but shortly thereafter was suspended because of her unrelenting criticism of NATO-backed warlords and drug barons. She has survived numerous assassination attempts and is touring North America this fall to promote her political memoir, A Woman Among Warlords, the extraordinary story of an Afghan who dared to raise her voice. This book has been described as a passionate and devastating critique of Western intervention in Afghanistan. The 2009 North of Nowhere Expo runs from October 16th to October 31st in Edmonton. This festival of independent media and underground art is held at the Edmonton Public Library and Metro Cinema. The festival includes films on food security, prison justice and the prison industrial complex and media democracy. There will also be a small magazine fair as well as workshops by the Beehive Collective a group that uses elaborately illustrated banners to discuss the effects of militarization, colonialism, resource extraction, and corporate globalization. Norwegian composer Rolf Wallen has created a moving multimedia tribute to child soldiers in the Congo. This work features the narration of the young Ugandan actor Arthur Kizenyi, a chamber ensemble and projections. The piece, Strange News, is being performed in Toronto at the Jane Mallet Theatre on October 29th. October 24th is the International Day of Climate Action, and demonstrations are planned across the country. In Ottawa, protesters will fill Parliament Hill to pressure our politicians to make an informed decision regarding climate change legislation. People will gather on the hill around noon. Remember to use environmentally friendly methods of transportation to get there. Under Rich Earth is a documentary by Malcolm Rogue. The film explores the overlooked conflict between farmers and a Canadian mining exploration company in the remote Intag Valley of Ecuador. The issues explored in this film are incredibly important in, the light, in light of the ongoing debate over Bill C-300. The film is screening in Winnipeg on Saturday, October 24th at Cinematheque as part of the Winnipeg Documentary Project. And that was Around the Left for the week of October 31st, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I am joined by Saul Landau, a frequent guest here on Alert and a member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective, who resides in Alameda, California, which is where we caught up with him. Saul is an award-winning filmmaker, broadcaster, and author. So today, moving on to today's interview topic, welcome to Alert Radio, Saul. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, we'd like to talk to you... Uh, about the increasingly loud noises coming from the American far right. We would like you to give it the smell test. Here in Canada, it's hard for us to track, let alone interpret this movement, but it seems important and on the rise. Most of us are at least aware of its popular gurus like Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh, and its more in intellectual uh, figures like David Horowitz, but 
That's about it. So can you tell us about these men and their following, aside from the fact that they've become millionaires leading the pack, what's, re- what's really pushing them? Well, I think if anybody listens to Rush Limbaugh, <clears throat> which is a little bit less painful than wearing scrapers between your thighs, you will hear that his audience is composed of very bitter people uh, for whom the American dream has failed. Somehow these welfare cheats have taken their money and spent it uh, on, on drugs and vodka, and uh, somehow they have been cheated out of this wonderful uh, possibility of having this great life, meaning a life of wealth, of course. And Rush Limbaugh, I think, represents this bitter, semi-paranoid group of people uh, you know, who are willing to try to blame somebody for their lack of success in their own terms. And I think if one understands that this is his audience, <clears throat> and there's probably a good 20, 20, 25 million of these people out there, one gets an insight into what these guys are doing. But the Limbaugh's and the Michael Savage's and the Glenn Beck's and the Hannity's, um, these people um, are not serious political figures. They're show business people. And I like to illustrate that uh, from my own experience. About 15 years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, I was on uh, the CNN show, I think it's been canceled now, called Crossfire. And at that time, Oliver North was representing the far right in the, in the Crossfire show. And um, the, the, the subject was human rights in Cuba. And he began... Um, as is typical of former Lieutenant Colonel North, with a very aggressive assault on me, saying, how can you possibly defend one of the foremost human rights violators in the world, Fidel Castro? And I said, well, Colonel, you know, you've probably heard that there are two uh, covenants uh, of human rights, and in one, Castro gets really high marks, and that's the substantive covenants, the economic and social rights. Uh, where he has provided for housing, he's provided for food, he's provided for education, medical care, all of these things that are considered substantive. He hasn't done all that well on the procedural uh, side. And he said, huh, what, 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 are, you, what are you talking about? What, what covenants are these? And I said, surely you've heard that the United Nations has have two co- human rights covenants. And he looked totally befuddled. And Michael Kinsley, who was the co-host, came in and saved him. And on several occasions, he would demonstrate his total ignorance. And I, in all modesty, was, uh, you know, taking advantage of that. And then came the break, the commercial break. And he looks at me and he says, hey, keep this up. This is great television. And there it is. This is show business. Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, Oliver North, all of these people are doing showbiz. And it's passing as politics. And the irony of, of it all is, of course, that the Democrats, um, when these, how shall we say, these radio show hooligans attack them, run for cover. Uh, finally, the president decided he would fight back against Fox Noise, or excuse me, Fox News. And, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, that becomes the issue. But this is all showbiz. And people are taking it far too seriously. There is a serious right wing in this country, in the United States, and that has to be taken seriously. 
Well, but let's what talk about the thought is radio show show business. Well, let's talk about uh, the motivation. Now, these hosts are getting a lot of mileage out of the hundreds of thousands of Americans who are busting around the country each week to attend rallies against Obama and his reform policies. Let's talk about uh, what is motivating these Americans. Well, I think I don't know what's motivating most of them other than bitterness. I mean, there's, there's obviously a very strong racial component in all of this. I mean, when you go in, and I've gone in, I, unlike some of my colleagues, I sort of stick my nose uh, into right-wing stuff. I go to gun shows and stuff like that just to find out what's going on. And you find out that there is a very heavy racial component there. They're very angry that a black man is president of the United States, and they think this is the end of their world. And some of them tend, you know, like, what's the, the guy who does uh, Kung Fu, uh, oh, Chuck Norris, right? And the birther movement, you know, that Obama was really, uh, Obama's mother was so clever that she knew he was going to be president before he was born and planted a birth certificate in Honolulu, right? I mean, these people are borderline uh, insane, but they are very determined to try to keep their old white Protestant, uh, um, uh, the America that they dreamed once was and isn't anymore. But in terms of the ignorance, I mean, I've, uh, at some of these t- town meetings and tea parties, people have stood up and said, I don't want the government interfering in my Medicare. Or I don't want the government playing around with my health benefits from the Veterans Administration. Now, these are obviously government programs. Indeed, uh, Senator Jim DeMint, who is leading the attack on Obama in the, in the U.S. Senate, literally stood up and saying the government has no business getting involved in anybody's health care. Now, Jim DeMint, like all members of Congress, has the best possible government health plan that anybody could ever imagine. And what is it? And so you're seeing a kind of passionate illogic and, and absurdity uh, in a movement that is also dangerous because these people are armed. Yes, we have seen uh, weapons brought to rallies against health care, Hitler mustaches on Obama. But let's talk about uh, the historical connection between this growth on the far right and other eras, uh, like McCarthyism or the John Birch Society. Do you see this as just the latest episode of what uh, historian Richard Hofstetter once called America's paranoid style? Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I think it goes deeper than that. I'm going to put myself out on the limb. I made a movie in 1982 for Dutch television called Quest for Power, Sketches of the New American Right. And at the time, I interviewed a lot of the figures um, at that time popular. Some of them, of course, still are in the American right wing. And uh, by the way, uh, some of them um, they were all very homophobic. I mean, that was one of the things that characterized them. Now, one of them, uh, Bobby Bauman, who was a congressman from the eastern shore of Maryland, who single-handedly defeated all and every legislation that came up that would have granted benefits or equal rights or protection to gay people. Bobby Bauman was caught in flagrante at a male brothel in Washington, D.C., with his automobile parked outside with his congressional plates with an underage boy. He blamed this on alcohol. And uh, he ran again for Congress after resigning, um, saying that he had been cured of his alcohol and he was now better. 
Um, well, shortly after the campaign started, this was the primary, the Republican primary. He dropped out. Apparently, his opponent had uh, taken a photo of him kissing a young man. Three years later, Bobby Bauman came out of the closet in San Francisco and said that he he wanted to apologize to all the gay people that he had hurt in his years, that he finally had come out of the closet. Now, this was the man who had led uh, the, the struggle against all gay rights. <clears throat> and, and I'm reminded of, um, of the German uh, SS leader, or, yeah, the SA leader at the time, Ernest Rome, the leader of the Bully Boys. Uh, he would sleep with a guy, <clears throat> get up, and he and the guy would go out and kill a homosexual. And I think some of the psychiatrists have described this as the inability to um, ingest one's own most loathsome impulse and then projecting it on other people as a love of power. That is the power that they don't have over what they think is a terrible thing. They then project on other people. So that the far right, I think, you know, you have the senator who gets caught in the men's room, a member of the far right, pushing his foot over to another guy. I mean, it's over and over again. Uh, Ariana Huffington's husband, who ran for governor of, of California, then came out of the closet. Now, this is, this, this, if you like, hostility this and this quest for power, I think, goes hand in hand with repression. And this is what I think we're seeing, not in everybody, of course, but in a lot of these people. And certainly, I, I want to name the names now, but in, in several of the people we interviewed for that movie back uh, in 1982, as we observed them on the editing table, we were stunned by some of their gestures and so on. Saul Landau, final question for you here on Alert Radio. What impact is the rise in popularity of Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, and his ilk having on American politics today? And do you anticipate it having a growing influence over the next few years? Well, I think the influence is that it reveals the cowardice of the opposition, that is, the Democrats. When these guys scream, and the Democrats, instead of standing up and saying, you big buffoons, who would pay any attention to you idiots? You're just a bunch of jerks. They say, oh, my God, Rush Limbaugh has attacked Van Jones. Obama better fire him. And Obama fired him. Oh, my God, Glenn Beck has attacked uh, ACORN, the very organization that probably did more than anything else to get Obama elected. And Obama doesn't defend Van Jones, and he doesn't defend ACORN. Now, that sucks. Now, old President Bush, the, 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 the father, when Clarence Thomas was up there for Supreme Court nomination. Actually, Bush barely knew him, but he defended him when he was attacked, albeit he shouldn't have been defended. But, I mean, the Democrats ought to take a lesson in loyalty. And it's, it's to my mind, incredible that they don't stand up to these loudmouth buffoons and just tell them to go to hell and, and laugh at them. Uh, instead, they take them seriously and begin to back off and act defensively. And this, to my mind, is the greatest sin. I mean, and behind that is the movement that had all the courage and all of the uh, Iran that elected Barack Obama seems to be paralyzed, half of them in a state of patiently waiting for him to do the right thing, and the other half in getting impatient but not knowing exactly what to do because they don't really want to, in any way, shape, or form, injure the first president that we've had in a long time that seems 
to know, you know, to share a bunch of good values. Uh, but you know, people can only wait so long. Um, you know, let me mention one last thing. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning David Horowitz, and I was his editor when I worked for Ballantine Books for his first book, Student. At that time, he was more vegetarian than thou. Later on, he became more radical than thou. And I remember, and I'll tell you this one little episode. I had made a film called Fidel, a portrait of Fidel Castro that was shown on public television and then later some theatrical release. And Horowitz came to one of the showings, which was a benefit for the Black Panther Legal Defense Fund. This was, I believe, in 70 or 71 in San Francisco. And he met me in the lobby and he said, is this all you're going to do for the Panthers? He says, the Panthers deserve all your support. You should give them several benefits and you should be out there working for him. Now, this was the David Horowitz that then later told the bookkeeper of Rampart's uh, magazine, which he edited, to go and work for the Panthers. She was murdered by the Panthers and Horowitz got scared. And that started his turn to the right. I think people ought to know that and not take him too seriously either. Well, Saul Lando, author of many books, director of many films, thank you for joining us once again here on Alert Radio. Thank you, Jeff. Bye-bye. In the wake of Gary Dewar's resignation as Premier of Manitoba and is joining the Harper team as Canadian Ambassador to the U.S., the Manitoba NDP just went through a leadership race to determine Dewar's replacement. Greg Salinger is now the Premier of Manitoba. We have on the phone from his home in Winnipeg, Jim Silver, formerly a longtime member of the Canadian Dimension <coughs> Collective. Jim teaches politics at the University of Winnipeg and is co-director of that university's urban and inner city studies. Welcome once again to Alert, Jim Silver. Hi, Chris. Let's get right into it. Does anything about the leadership contest between Greg Selinger and his rival, Steve Ashton, suggest what direction Selinger might take, Jim, in Manitoba's NDP government? Well, um, yes, I think so. I think the fact that the vast majority of people on the left supported Selinger, uh, Steve Ashton said the most left-wing things, right? but the people who are active on the left overwhelmingly supported Greg, and that included uh, very large numbers of young people. Okay. Uh, although Andrew Swan was touted as the candidate of, uh, of uh, the future, the youth candidate, if you actually looked at the campaign teams, Selinger attracted... Uh, vastly disproportionate numbers of young people. Right. So I think what that tells us is that Selinger is likely to move a little bit to the left relative to where Dewar was. I don't think he'll move very far. But a little bit, a little, a little bit, bit of a, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was finance minister throughout Gary Dewar's tenure reign, as we know. Um, can we take it from that, that like Dewar, Selinger is going to be a promoter of Canada-U.S. economic integration and a don't-rock-the-boat moderate NDPer intent on supporting the economic agenda of Manitoba's business class while going for incremental gains? What's your comments on that, Jim? Well, I think 
that I what I wouldn't agree with is the language in which with which you've asked the question. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't at all think that it's accurate to describe Greg as a don't rock the boat person. Okay. Uh, nor a person who supports the economic agenda of Manitoba's business class. I mean, Greg comes from the left. He was a community organizer in the inner city prior to his becoming finance minister. It is true that as finance minister, he brought in balanced budgets, and it is true that the Dewar strategy was to, I, I, I think, to give to the corporate community enough of what they asked for that uh, he could, in effect, the government could, in effect, buy them off. And then whatever was left used to make some in- incremental gains. I think Greg will probably use the same strategy. I wouldn't call it a don't rock the boat uh, strategy. I would call it a he won't poke them in the eye with a sharp stick strategy. <laughs> okay. Uh, until, you know, he will uh, be careful about what he does in order to try to be re- reelected in 2011, which is the next election date. So, I mean, he will, he will be moderate. He will go for incremental gains. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the question is, do you, do, you, do you support incremental gains or not? You had mentioned that uh, Mr. Selinger would start with some incremental gains. Um, any that you could see happening right off the hop? Well, um, as the result of pressure from the progressive inner city community, he's committed himself to producing 300 units of social housing per year. Right. And there have been approximately zero units of social housing produced in the past 10 years. Not zero, but close to zero. So this is 300 units is not nearly enough, but it's a great deal more than what we've had. He is uh, firmly committed to that. And I expect that we will see that. I think it's going to be hard for the government to produce 300 units a year. I think it'll be a logistical challenge and a financial challenge, but we will see that. I'm I'm confident. Okay. I think we'll also see some important stuff around alternative educational strategies because he's committed to improving the grade 12 graduation rates, and this is really a poor people's issue. Uh, low-income neighborhoods have very, very low grade 12 graduation rates, and he's committed to improving that. So there's a couple of things that I think we can expect to see pretty quickly. And uh, that is something that we'll look forward to. Um, Lastly, are the people of Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, going to embrace Greg Selinger like they've embraced Gary Dewar? Probably not in the same way that they have Dewar. I think Dewar had a certain magic to him. He was, you know, the consummate politician, uh, he could, uh, um, you know, smooth with the with the best of them. He was very, very comfortable in any kind of a setting. Greg isn't that type of a person. Uh, he's a very straightforward kind of guy, very, very uh, bright, intelligent guy. But I think the strategies that he adopts, the uh, uh, the policies that he introduces, will find broadly based support sufficient to win him win the NDP re-election in 2011, but I don't think he'll be the very popular figure that uh, Dewar was. Okay, well, time will tell, of course, and thank you, Jim, for joining us on Alert Radio today. Okay, thanks, thanks. And that was Jim Silver, Professor of Politics at the University of Winnipeg. This is Alert Radio, and I'm Jeff Hughes. 
Canada's pension system is in crisis. Everybody is in agreement about this, and it's massively important, in one way or another, immediately affecting, sometimes quite drastically, the living standards of millions of Canadians. Now, we can't sort it all out in 12 minutes, but we're going to try to get at some of the key issues. Fred Wilson is the assistant to the president of the Communications, Energy, and Paper Workers Union. He volunteers with the Council of Canadians and serves on its board of directors. We are talking to him from his home in Ottawa. Hello, Fred Wilson, and welcome to Alert Radio. How are you, Jeff? Glad I'm, to be with you. Thank you. I, I'm very well. Now, first, I'd like you to cover some of the layers of this pension crisis for our listeners across the country. Can you first talk to us about how the devaluation of the stock market affected Canadian pensioners? Well, sure. I mean, uh, for, for the vast majority of Canadians, I, I mean, the uh, pension, um, uh, pension income, sort of retirement security, uh, is based on a narrow uh, public plan that provides uh, what you might call poverty-level uh, income to people through old-age security and a pension plan. And for somebody who's paid the maximum into those plans, they're going to, you know, they can count on about $15,000 a year of, 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 of pension income. And everything above that has been left in our system to people's um, either em, uh, employer-sponsored pension plans or their private investment. And for uh, because only uh, only about a third of Canadians have employer-sponsored uh, pension plans, two-thirds of Canadians have relied on their private pension plans, which for the most part have been RRSPs and other mutual funds and, uh, you know, and those sorts of investments. Um, and, uh, you know, we were told through all the Freedom 55 uh, advertisements and so on that, uh, you know, if you weren't investing in your pension, you know, in your uh, golden years, then you were going to pay the price. And so people did input uh, large amounts of their savings into those uh, particular schemes. Uh, and then uh, when the uh, financial crisis hit last fall, they, they lost those investments by anywhere between 25 and 75% of that value, depending on, you know, uh, the particular investments that you have. And so we're now left with a situation in which literally millions of Canadians have lost uh, have lost uh, you know a very very large percentage of their savings for their retirement, and um, it's uh, we're going to have huge social problems um, uh, in the years ahead uh, as a result of this. Let's talk about another layer of the uh, pension crisis. Those people who work for companies that are now bankrupt, leaving them in a position to scrap over the proceeds of sale with other unsecured creditors. Well, of course, yes. Then, so then you have this next tranche of Canadians, as you describe it, of people who have uh, negotiated pension plans with their employers um, and um, and. Uh, those employer pension plans, whether or not bankruptcy is involved or not, I mean, obviously there's quite a few major Canadian companies, you know, from CanWest Global that we've just heard about to Abitibi Bullwater. Uh, you've got the largest company in the media sector, the largest company in the forest sector, uh, as well as many, uh, the largest company in the transportation sector, Air Canada. All of these companies are today under bankruptcy protection. And what that means is that these companies who have promised to pay pensions to thousands of workers who have been their employees and who are now retired or who are about to retire, 
this company, these companies are now insolvent and are saying that we cannot pay these debts that we have to these to these to these uh, pensioners or workers who are about to go on pension, because in effect that's what their obligations are. It's a deferred debt. It's deferred wages of those uh, of those employees, and they owe that money to these people who are retired or who are going to retire, and now they're saying that they cannot pay them. But the problem goes further than that, Jeff. It's not just companies that that are coming in that are. It's not just companies that are insolvent that are under uh, CCAA or bankruptcy uh, or or involved in actual bankruptcy uh, proceedings. We have pension regulations in this country, which says that every, if you have a pension plan and you promise your employees a pension income, you set up a plan and you have to fund it. And that, and that, your pension plan is audited every three years. And if you have found, if you're found uh, that your pension plan is that you don't have enough money in your pension plan, then the regulator says that you have to make special payments to your plan uh, in order to in order to make it solvent. And if you fail to make those special payments, then the regulator will say, we're going to end this plan. We're going to end this plan. We're going to do what's called a wind-up. And if the plan is 70 or 80% funded, then the people who are owed those pensions will only get 70 to 80% of the value of their pension. And so we have literally dozens and dozens of, of, of companies in Canada who are doing that as we speak. And as you mentioned, uh only a third of uh, Canadians are in a situation where they're able to benefit from a pension. Can you talk about the 11 million workers who don't have a plan? Well, uh, in fact, it was only, uh, you know, if we went back in time about, uh, you know, only uh, 10 or 15 years ago, it can, uh, you know, uh, most likely uh, it was somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of Canadians had, an, had a, a pension plan through their employer. That number is now down to, uh, you know, down to less than 33%. And, um, you know, which is an, you know, a very unfortunate and, uh, you know, trend in our economy as employers seek to keep cut costs. um, And they do so by by eliminating uh, worker pensions. But the vast majority of Canadians, and this is part of our political problem in fighting for pensions, the vast majority of Canadians have always stood on the outside of, of private pension plans. And uh, sometimes they even, uh, very unfortunately, uh, see workers with a with an employer pension plan as having something that they don't. Um, and uh, and the vast majority of Canadians have simply, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, they have simply their old age security, whatever the meager earnings they're going to get from the Canada Pension Plan, plus whatever private RRSPs um, that uh, you know that they have uh, saved over the years and. Those that have done that have lost a large part of that uh, through the, in the in the current financial market downturn. Uh, so that's why uh, the Canadian Labour Congress and the labour movement in Canada is ha, is uh, campaigning today for a significant increase in public pensions. You know, in, workers in Europe uh, don't face the same kind of problems that Canadian workers do. Um, whether or not you have an employer pension plan or not, if you are just an ordinary working person in Europe, in any of the Scandinavian countries, in France or in Germany or, um, you know, or, 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 or most of continental Europe, you will have a government pension plan that most likely will be somewhere around 50 to 60 percent 
of, of the uh, income that you had um, in your peak income years when you were working. Um, and so that's why here in Canada, although it would take us a long time and some very dramatic and perhaps even radical uh, moves to get us into that kind of a situation, the labor movement in Canada is saying, let's at least start by doubling the CPP benefit for Canadians. So uh, right now, if your CPP benefit might be seven or eight thousand or ten thousand dollars a year, we should at, we should right now say that we're going to double that, and uh, and uh, this would be uh, certainly it would cost some money, but it, we can afford it, and it could really literally make the difference between whether millions of uh, old age uh, of, of of old age pensioners will be on uh, some form of uh, on some form of welfare or whether they're pensioners with some sort of living income. This is Alert Radio, and we've been speaking to Fred Wilson, who is the assistant to the president of the Communication, Energy, and Paper Workers Union, who is about to go into negotiations with Abitibi Bowater. Uh, thank you very much, Fred Wilson, for joining us today on Alert Radio. Music is a Weapon, I'm Mitch Podolik, and today's show is about songwriters for the most part. Well, about nine years ago, labor radical Joe Flexer died, and uh, a lot of people, including myself, were deeply sad and screwed up about that because he was such an amazing character. So I went and I asked a dear friend of mine, Tim Harrison, who is a singer and a songwriter and a, the founder of the Owen Sound Folk Festival if he would come and sing at the funeral. He did. He came and did a beautiful version of Phil Oakes' When I'm Gone. Yesterday, Tim was operated on with a triple bypass, and we all waited with bated breath to hear the results of it, and Tim survived. So today we're going to play Tim singing When I'm Gone, not as a sad message, but as a celebration of life. Here's Tim with Phil Oakes' When I'm Gone. In this world, I'll be long when I'm gone, and I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone. And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone, so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. Won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone. And the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone. My pen won't pour the lyric line when I'm gone. So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. I won't breathe the brandy air when I'm gone. And I can't even worry about my cares. I won't be asked to 
do my share when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here I won't be running from the rain when I'm gone And I can't even suffer from the pain Nothing I can lose or I can gain when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here Won't see the golden of the sun when I'm gone And the evenings and the mornings will be one when I'm gone Can't sing louder than the gun when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it While I'm days won't be dances of the light when I'm gone and the sands will be shifting from my sight when I'm gone can't add my name into the fight when I'm gone so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here I won't be laughing at the light Gone. Can't question how or when or why when I'm gone. I can't live proud enough to die when I'm gone. So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. There's no place in this world I'll belong when I'm gone. And I won't know the right from when I'm gone And you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it I guess I'll have to do it I guess I'll have to do it while I'm
That was Tim Harrison with Phil Oaks's When I'm Gone. You know, one of the strangest things that ever happens is that people have these crazy discussions about what is folk music. It always drives me crazy. Uh, Big Bill Brunsey said, All songs is a folk song. I never heard a horse sing. Pete Seeger says, A folk song isn't a folk song until it's been passed down from one generation to another without being written down. Well, when I was functioning as an artistic director of a folk festival, I used to say, if I say it's a folk song, it's a folk song. But that was really sort of a silly position to take as well. Songs enter into the consciousness of people, and sometimes they stick around. I tend to think of folk songs as songs that are written not with the intent of making money, but just with the intent of writing a good song. Here are two great Canadian songwriters with two songs they wrote for that very purpose. Throw me from this train When my body's all used up Don't you mend me like a broken cup You gotta throw me from this train Throw me from this train Late now to make it up I've done so many things I shouldn't have Now won't you throw me from this train By the river where the sun goes down You're only peaceful that I ever found You remember how I loved that sound Of a train Can't rough me up You know I loved you like a newborn Now won't you throw me from this train Get on board and look around 
little town where everyone's the same. Got my ticket out of here and I won't be back again. How could you tell me that you didn't think I'd try? How could I stay here when it's burning me alive? I can't leave here without crying.
That was Carol Luft, and before that, Rob Lutz, both of them singing new Canadian songs by new Canadian songwriters. This is Music is the Weapon. I'm Mitch Padone. is the program for the week of October 22nd, 2009. Thank you for listening to Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. <laughs>